Uh, if you've got a Bible on you, why don't you grab it? Um, if not, the words will appear behind me. Um, we're going to just jump straight into God's Word this morning. Uh, today we're reading from Matthew's Gospel. We're, from, we're in chapter 25, and we're going to be reading verses 14 to 30. So that's Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30, and this is God's Word. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey, and the man who had five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more bags. So also the one who, with two bags of gold, gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew you are a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seeds. So I was afraid. And I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags for whoever has will be given more. And they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We thank God for his word as it still speaks to us today. So we're in a series and have been in a series over the last number of weeks. This is actually the 10th week, believe it or not, uh, of digging into the kingdom of God, okay? And as we've been trying to look at the kingdom of God, we've been trying to look at it through the lens that Jesus taught on it. And when Jesus taught about the kingdom of God, he tended to teach in story. They're called parables, and each of these weeks we've been picking a parable, and we've been kind of digging out from the parable what it might mean for those of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ to live out the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And today we got one of those uh, more famous parables, okay? Some of them as we've been going along have been maybe uh, more fringe ones, ones we don't read a lot or we haven't heard before. Um, This time we're in one of the famous ones, right? We're in the parable of the talents, And this parable falls towards, right, the end of a series of teachings that we know as the Olivet Discourse, all right? They kind of run mainly through chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew. And this whole section, right, it really speaks into questions and feelings that were on the lips of the people of the age, right? So it's speaking right to the questions that were on people's lips, right? They were asking eschatological questions. They were asking about the end times. They were asking about the end of the world. 
But then those of you who are about my age, 25, no, I'm not 25, you will have lived through those sorts of moments before, haven't you, right? If you're about my age, you'll have lived through those sorts of moments. For us, it was called the millennium bug, right? The millennium bug. Those of you that are younger are like, what the heck was the millennium bug, right? The millennium bug, right? It was a massive moment, right? It sounds kind of laughable now, right? That anything even remotely serious could have been called the millennium bug, right? But the millennium bug, right? It sounds like a joke, right? And even looking back now, it feels a little bit like a joke. But back in 1999... It was way more serious. It was the conversation on people's lips. One Guardian piece, uh, speaking to somebody who was in IT around the time for major companies in the UK, right? This is what it says, all right? On New Year's Eve 20 years ago, Scottish air traffic controllers called the emergency room in London to say that their radar had failed as they could see no aircraft. The radar was actually working perfectly. But all flights had been cancelled because of fears that planes or airports would fail at midnight because of the millennium bug, right? This thing was a big deal, right? Uh, And there was this fear, right, that as the clocks and computers in the world, they switched over from a system that had only ever dealt in 99s or 90s, right? Because computers had never been made in the 2000s yet, okay? We've been in the 90s when it flicked over to sort of reading 00 in some way that it would crash everything, right? Prison doors would swing open, planes would fall from the sky, nuclear warheads would launch immediately, right? It would be the end of the world as we know it. On a micro level, right, it's kind of like that panic. If you want to know what it was like, kind of like that panic that sets in in your house, right? When you start to Google, does an iPhone change the clock time for you whenever you go back or forward one hour, right? You know, that usually happens at about 12 o'clock when you're going to bed and then you're like, oh, flip, clocks go back. Does my phone change? And you're like freaking out. And then your phone wakes you up in the morning and you're like checking about four o'clocks to make sure that it does, in fact, change all by itself. It was the end of the world, right? It was the end of the world, or at least some people thought it was. But then those feelings should feel quite familiar to how the world feels right about now, doesn't it? Anti-vaxxers, anti-maskers, coronavirus is all just a hoax and about China taking over the world or the government telling you what to do. I mean, even my window cleaner, right? My window cleaner the other day, first question whenever he came was, are you saved, right? So you know what you're in for, right? When your window cleaner arrives, the first question he asks is if you're saved. Then he proceeds to do, well, I mean, I would say a mediocre job of cleaning the windows, but anyway, and you know what it's like with window cleaners, you can never get rid of them when they arrive, right? The most embarrassing conversation about, we're going to, we're thinking about using someone else. Anyway, so first question is, are you saved, right? Then he told me that we were living in the end times and uh, the vaccine will make me marked. So, I mean, you wouldn't want to take a vaccine, would you? Would you take a vaccine? And he's like going on like this, right? All while doing the windows. And he closes it with, I'm big into my end time prophecies. What an age we live in, right? What an age we live in, okay? This is just a window cleaner and it's the questions, it's the comments that are on his lips. And there's an agitation at work in the world in which we live right now, isn't there? There's an agitation out there in culture. Maybe it's in you, in the midst of the uproar and the disruption and the restriction that we feel on our lives right now. There's an agitation and therefore there's questions on our lips. And in Jesus' day, as he speaks in Matthew 25, there was an agitation too. The question for those who were beginning to follow Jesus, those who were beginning to be known as people of the way, the agitation on their lips was, what is going to happen at the end, right? 
Like, what's going to happen? We're following you, Jesus. Some people are already dying. Where are they? What's going to happen at the end of it all? What do we need to do until then? And this section in chapter 5 of Matthew is essentially an answer to the question, what are kingdom people, Jesus' people, meant to do in the meantime? What are we meant to do until then? And so Jesus does what we've been studying all throughout the series. He tells a story, right? And this one would have caught attention immediately, right? Because it is, after all, a story that's about huge sums of money, investment, profit, and risk, right? They would have been sucked in immediately. It's like a Hollywood-type tale. If you've ever seen Damien Lewis's series on Sky, Billions, right? We're talking that sort of story. And right in the first verse, this is what it says. Again, it will be like, it is the kingdom of God. Again, the kingdom of God will be like. And then the story follows. The kingdom of God is like a story about a master, huge sums of money and return. It's a story about resources. And I think it speaks then as it speaks today that the kingdom of heaven that we live in and live out is about deposit and about return. So those are the two things I want to look at today, that the kingdom of God is like deposit and returns. Let's just read those first few verses again, right? Verses 14 to 18. Again, it will be like, it will be like, again, the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. As a young adult, okay, I was not particularly forward thinking about what money I did have, right? When I was kind of grown up and I was a student and then I started to work, right? I wasn't exactly like, you know, putting things away. I mean, who is? What weirdo saves when you're a student? Anyway, I was not. Every time my student loan came in, within about 15 minutes of it coming in, I had already decided what I was going to spend every last penny of it on. And that was normally a guitar or an amplifier. Normally what that meant was I ended up in some sort of meeting with the finance department about how would actually pay my fees, which usually meant taking on more shifts in Subway. That's right. You didn't know that I was a sandwich artist, but uh, add that to the list of titles, right? Uh, I usually had to take more shifts in Subway to be able to pay for the fees that I had blown all my money on some ridiculous thing that I didn't actually need. And I hadn't really thought about it in my life, right? I mean, I was never in the red. I I wasn't in debt. Well, apart from my student loan, right? I'd kind of looked after it, but I wasn't forward thinking. And I hadn't thought about it until I was getting married to Joy. And then Joy's dad and and mom really kindly offered that they would help us out with the deposit to buy the house that we were going to buy. And this meant one day I was sitting around in Joy's mom and dad's house and we were just talking and then Joy's dad begins to ask me uh, about our finances, right? And that's, that's fair enough, right? He's going to make a significant investment in us as a couple, right? So he starts to ask me about our finances and he's like an old school guy, right? Like a details guy, like he writes everything down in a notebook type guy, right? Like he's that guy. And he asked, well, have, have you got any finances? And I panic, right? Immediately, I'm like, this guy's like, I'm, I mean, number one, I'm marrying his daughter. He's decided that he's, you know, I'm okay to sort of look after his daughter for the rest of his life. Number two, he's about to give me a large sum of money to buy the house. So I panic and I say, um, I have assets, right? <laughs> I don't know where that came from, but I'm like, I have 
assets, right? Now, now this being Joy's dad, he's like, mm-hmm, writes it down, right? So now I'm really like, oh no, like he's written it down. I'm stuffed, right? So then I'm thinking, well, maybe that'll be that. And he'll just go, well, it's okay. Dave's got assets. I mean, Joy's in safe hands, right? So then he says, and um, what are those assets, right? So now I'm in deep trouble. I'm one Avalon guitar. And then I'm like, and a Fender amplifier. And now I'm just like racking my brain. So I'm like one Xbox and two controllers, right? One 2003 Seat Ibiza. It's at this point that he stops writing and looks at me, right? He's like, that's not an asset. Those are not sums of money. Like that's not an investment that you have. I had nothing. I had no monetary resources of note. And the thing is that when it comes to buying a house, right, if, that's, if you've ever had that experience in your life, the sums of money that are like being talked about and you sign up to on a piece of paper, they're like so large, they're fictional. Like you can't, you can't think about them enough or it would totally fry your brain. You're just like, oh, okay, and you're kind of signing it and there's more zeros than you've seen before. And you're like, what is going on here, right? It's so big, it's almost fictional. And something like that is going on here. See, the word talent is not talent as we know it, though we do get our English word talent from this term. It was a name given to a sum of money, or more accurately, the weight of a sum of money, all right? Classically, it's not something that's actually that easy to kind of tie down, because in different generations, there were different coins and different metrics of worth. So if you have a talent of silver, that's a different worth than a talent of gold, for example. So it's hard to tie down what it means, but the best guesses that they can come up with in terms of scholars are one talent equals about 6,000 denarii. Or in other words, about 20 years earnings for a worker at minimum wage. It is a vast sum of money. So big, it's almost fictional. And it's given to these servants. Just given to them. And the thing is that that might seem like a far-fetched idea, right? But in truth, the system of servanthood that was in place in Jesus' day was complex, right? It wasn't just, as we might think of it now, you're a slave. You, know, you never give a slave that amount of money. It was complex. There were different levels, right? And some servants carried huge responsibility. For example, you might remember back in the Old Testament narrative that in the story of Joseph, he's bought by Potiphar. He's taken to the house. And then in Genesis 39, it says this, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. It was a complex system, right? And sometimes servants were put in charge of a lot, not just a little. So it wouldn't be uncommon to be entrusted with finances or property for a very trusted slave. However, it's just the sums of money that we're talking about in this parable that would have been way rarer in Jesus' day than it is today. I mean, today we live in a period of time where very wealthy people just have people that manage their wealth, right? I mean, imagine that. I just have a guy that manages all my money, so I don't have to think about all my money, right? Back then, it would have been way rarer than it is now. And to the listeners of the day, they knew that this was pure story because of the vastness of the sums of money that were being talked about. And so each is entrusted with different amounts, right? Five talents, two talents, one. Here's the thing, though. We're so quick to write down the five, two, and one, aren't we? When the reality is they were all given different amounts, but each was given much. They got different amounts, but each was given a vast abundance. 
And the thing is that the money was given to each servant, not because of any specific gift or ability that it has, right? Like, it's not like it says five talents were given to Darren because he's a brilliant investor. Two were given to Sandra because she's an amazing negotiator. And one went to Stephen because he's good at maths. You know, it didn't work like that, right? It doesn't talk about any specific gift or ability. There's no specifics except this one line is the one that tends to trip us up. Verse 15, to one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, to another one bag, each according to his ability. And this is the point where we Christians, in our incredible ability, make it all about us. This is the point where we make it about us, isn't it? When it talks about five, two, and one being given to each according to their ability, this is the moment where we start to step in and we end up with conversations about being a five-talent man or a two-talent man. And all we're doing is making it about us. Because the word for abilities, right, is from the Greek word dynamis, which actually means more like power or capabilities. It's not abilities as we would know it. You see, you see a capability isn't just about an ability. It's also about opportunity. In other words, God gives us a certain skill and he has a certain power to employ it. One commentator explains it like this. They are the responsibilities the Lord gives his people in the light of their abilities and opportunities. So it's not a talent in the way we would use the word. It is not a gift as if we could control it. It's not an ability of which we might boast. It is an investment which the master makes in his servants. And that's it. In each of us, every one, As you sit here today, as you tune in online, no matter the background, no matter the opportunities, the faith levels, the knowledge, whatever, there is a deposit in your life. There is an investment in you. And we have got to remember that it doesn't matter who got what or how much or whether somebody it might appear got more than you or less than you. We have each received a vast abundance. There is a deposit in you all. And we have got to do everything in our power to not make it about us. See, it's so easy to start looking around at the gifts and the opportunities of others, isn't it? What they carry, what seems to be happening in their life, how they seem to be the person that always gets the chance to do this or that. It's so easy to look around. And then we begin to want what they have, don't we? We begin to look at other people and say, oh, if only my life looked like theirs. If only I got the opportunities they got. If only I got the investment they got. And we get angry about it that we don't have. And it's just fuel to a proud heart. And it comes to each of us, doesn't it? At some point in our life, it comes to each of us. Like, just look around the room. Or to the people that we keep company with. Or the books that we read and think, why can't I have that and we're looking around the room and we're trying to figure out where we fit when the talents were dealt out and as soon as we start to do that we've just made it all about us and not about the investment that's been made in you or we struggle to believe it in the first place we either start looking around or we struggle to believe that there's an investment in the first place. Like I think one of the great challenges and mysteries of the kingdom of God as we've been moving through this series is how it fits around all of this, right? How it fits around normal life. 
I mean, we go to conferences and we get hyped up when we're like, we're ready to take the world for Jesus, right? Or even church on a Sunday. People always remark about how you know you leave church on a high. We've been talking about the kingdom. You're taking in the big kind of things that we're talking about. And then you have an argument with a toddler on the way home in the car. Or you're still without a job. Or you're still without the relationship that you always hoped for. Or you're still stuck doing admin on a Sunday afternoon. Or there's still dysfunction in our family. And we're like, we've just been talking about the vastness of the kingdom, the investment in my life, and now what? This? Because it's right in front of us, shouting at us all the time for our attention. What do we do? We just lower the expectations for what's been invested in here. The reason that I guess he or she just got more talent and, or has more opportunity, and we settle, don't we? And yeah, I want to encourage you today that there is a deposit in your life. The story of the Bible from the start to the finish is that there is incredible investment in you and in me. We are made in the image of God. That's the message of the very start of the biblical story, right? We're made in God's image. We're made in his likeness. We're part of a kingdom mission through Abraham, the Israelites, and all the story of the Old Testament, right through to the reason that Jesus was sent, the call on the church. We're called to fulfill that mission to the world. And Jesus gifted us to do it with apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. He poured out charismatic gifts in the church. He invested us with talents. There is a deposit in your life. I have this friend and he works in Belfast a lot actually. But the thing is that the way that he moves around Belfast the street, we'll never see him when he's here, right? He's in the city just about every day. In fact, he's walked past me in the street numerous times. But he has this incredible ability to just like ghost past you and you never know that he's there, right? He's normally dressed in a suit. He doesn't look particularly flash. He doesn't look particularly not flash. He just looks like he works in an office somewhere in Belfast. And he's always coming and going throughout the city center, except you never really see him when he does, right? Like it's some sort of spy behavior going on here, right? And the thing is that he's a salesman, okay? He sells, but what it, it just so happens that what he sells are fine diamonds and gold, right? He deals in fine diamonds and golds, and he has to make deliveries. He has to sell to the kind of finer jewelers in and around Belfast City Center. So he's always coming and going. And so he has to get the precious stuff that he has one way or another in and out to these places. And so you might think, right? He's, I mean, he's got tens of thousands of pounds worth of jewelry on him whenever he's in and out of the city. I'm not going to tell you who he is, by the way. He's going to get mugged right now. Anyway, he's in and out of the city with all this jewelry, incredible worth on him at those times. And in order to carry them around the city, right, you might think he's got some sort of like Mission Impossible type briefcase on him. You know, it's like handcuffed to his arm, needs a retina scanner to open it up. But oh no, he's got tens of thousands of pounds worth of stuff on him. And he's carrying it all around in some duffed old black holdall. He's got diamonds in a duffel bag. And that's how he makes his way in and around the city to do the things that he's doing with diamonds in a duffel bag. And that's it. That's us. That's the investment that's in your life. You see, there's the danger that we look at our lives and all we see is the duffel bag, right? We're just beat up. We're just making our way through. We're just utilitarian, right? We're just kind of we're just getting it done. We're barely holding on. We're kind of believing in Jesus, but not enough for it to make the biggest difference to how we live our lives. All we see is the duffel bag and not the diamonds that are in it. There is a deposit in your life 
of so much worth and significance that it doesn't matter who got what, right? It doesn't matter who got what. And even though it's hard sometimes to believe in the midst of nappy changes, finances, and work woes, we are diamonds in duffel bags. That's the investment that's in your life. So what are we to do with them? If that's who we are, if that's truly what's been given to us, what are we to do with it? Well, the parable tells us that we are to return. Here's how the passage continues. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting what you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. See, Here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into darkness where there will be weeping and a gnashing of teeth. And so it appears that God expects a return on his investment in our lives. And the major thrust of this whole section of the parable, right, is that our lives need to be marked with decisive action, don't they? It's the decisive action of the first two slaves and what they did with the money in terms of generating a return is what makes a difference to how the master receives them, isn't it? And the amazing thing for me is that reading the parable, right, all of the servants given money, they all have the same attitude when they're given it. And that is that they all want to please the master. It's just that one of them goes about it entirely the wrong way. And in the face of it, the condemnation for the servant who buried the money, right, would probably have come as a bit of a shock to the listeners, right? On the face of it, that wouldn't have been the norm, okay? They, they probably would have been shocked at how the master replied. It was a pretty well-established practice uh, in the day, in that day, to bury money, right? It was safe in there after all. And some of the writings of things like rabbinical teachers and stuff of the time, they revered it, in fact. They thought it as good practice, safe practice. And generally speaking, in those days, living as a person of precaution was esteemed. It was good, If you were somebody who took care of things like that, then you were a good person. I mean, we hear it too today, don't we? Really thoroughly in the church all the time that a person will make a great leader because they are such a safe pair of hands. Don't we? We hear that all the time. We like those sorts of people. They won't stuff it up. They won't wreck it. They won't risk it. They won't rock the boat. Normally what we call that is faithfulness, isn't it? Those sorts of people, we call them faithful. Except that's not what Jesus says here. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. 
His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. In Jesus' eyes, faithfulness isn't static. Faithfulness isn't bearing what's been invested in us. Faithfulness leads to returns. We've got it all wrong. One commentator, Kenneth Bailey, says it like this. In the parable, the master challenges his servants to live boldly and publicly as his servants, using his resources, unafraid of his enemies, confident in the future as his future. Faithfulness is all about using what is at hand. No matter how great or how small, it is given by God and we need to use it for his purposes. Faithfulness looks like using the incredible investment that's in it to return for his purposes. Now we're entering lockdown again. We can all look forward to Instagram once again becoming 99% giveaway competitions, right? Can all look forward to it. Soon you're all going to be tweeting. I mean, my entire feed is going to be you guys putting out stories of some coffee thing that you want to win, right? Because that's what it becomes in lockdown, apparently. And I'm one of those really sad people, right? Eternally optimistic and expectant about the world that I live in. That when I enter competitions, right, I genuinely and wholeheartedly believe that I'm going to win it when I enter it, right? Like, I never enter, but Joy will tell you I'm a really bad loser, okay? So basically, I never compete at anything that I might not be okay at, right? And so when it means competitions, I genuinely think I'm going to win. So therefore, I don't enter that many because I can't deal with that amount of disappointment and rejection in my life, right? But, okay, supposing when I do enter a competition, I do that thing, right, that I'm sure lots of you do, which is that I start to ask, and normally I'll ask Joy out loud, right, as if she'll kind of approve of my scheming. I mean, if I did win this 10,000 pound bike, right, would you either keep the bike and ride it or sell the bike and spend the 10,000 pounds on sensible things, right? Oh, I mean, Joy, and then you reason, you're like, Joy, you know, I'll maybe buy like a 2,000 pound bike and then, you know, put the rest into, you know, shelving the kitchen or something really boring, right? You start to reason, what would you do with the thing that you've just won? The message of the parable is, use it. Use it. Don't start cutting it up. What has been invested in you, given to you, is for you to return for the kingdom. Use it. So how? If it's our job to use what has been invested in us, how do we do it? Well, one way to look at it is like this, okay? I love this little line in Proverbs. This is what it says. Honor the Lord with your substance. We live this out. We, we honor the investment that's in us when we honor the Lord with our substance, right? The word for substance in this particular line is used in lots of contexts to mean goods and assets and money. But in rabbinic interpretation of the word, the word substance is taken to mean grace. Honor the Lord with the grace that is on your life. What is your life graced for? You want to know what you're meant to do? Then think about what your life is graced for. What do you have that is God's peculiar property in your life? Just things that seem to happen whenever you do something. Hospitality, speak, sing. 
You talk to other people about Jesus. Doors seem to just open and you seem to be able to have these kinds of conversations. What are you graced for in your life? Then go after that. Do that. Invest in that. Andy Masters was speaking here last Sunday night and afterwards we were chatting and he was reminding me of a conversation that um, we had about Central back when we were on the road to being given this building. In fact, I just got the phone call from the presbytery that said, hey, look, you know, are you interested? And we'd been having a no- number of conversations then about it. And I phoned Andy because Andy planted a church. I'd been really close to him through the years. And we talked about ideas and, and all that sort of stuff over the time. And I was fairly fried just thinking about it. If I'm honest, I was in that kind of excited, terrified stage of like, look at this place. And it didn't look like this when we got it, right? So it was kind of like, what the heck? What are we going to do? I mean, we can't say no, but like, can we handle this? Is it going to kill us? Is it going to be too big a burden? How are we going to be us in a place like this? And I was kind of freaking out a little bit about it. And I phoned Andy and we talked about stuff. And then he reminded me last week of something that he said on the phone call. And this is what he said. God knew you needed this building for the church that was in your heart. And the thing is, right, that he was right in a sense that there was always a church in my heart. For as long as I can remember, the church is the thing that has had a hold of my heart. It's the thing that I've been excited about. It's the thing that I've dreamt about. It's the thing that I look at and and feel deeply aching and grieving about the state of so much of the church as it is around. There was always a church in my heart, but there were also absolutely times when I wanted to bury it. There were times when I wanted to bury it. For example, at one stage when I was working in ministry, I decided I'd had enough and I applied for a web job in chain reaction cycles. I just wanted this whole thing to go away. I wanted to do the sensible thing and get a proper job. But you know what? That would have just been fantasy, right? Because it wouldn't have gone away and it would always have been the thing that my life had been graced for. In the end of the day, it was just pride telling me that it was an option. It was just the pride of a less talented servant looking at what others were doing, comparing and making it about me. Looking at what I felt was the call and the grace in my life, too afraid of risk. Like, what if it feels? How is that going to look for me if this thing doesn't work out? It was all about me. When the only way to live faithfully is to live out of the investment, the grace that is on your life. The thing is that if you have a natural gift or ability, right, once you've realized that it's there, whatever it is, whether it's like tennis or golf or speaking or running or whatever it is, once you've realized what you have as a gift or an ability, then you do whatever you can to get opportunities to do it, don't you? Like if you realize, yeah, I'm kind of good at this, right? Maybe, maybe I could do this. Then you look for opportunities to develop that gift, And this is just the same thing. Here's the question. Are you looking for opportunities to use the grace that is on your life? Are you? Really? Are you looking to try and use the grace that is on your life? Or are you burying it? Are you settling and are you playing it safe? If there's anything that this year has taught us, It's that safety, security, and control are a myth, right? 
If there's anything that this year could teach us, it's that our desire to be in charge of every aspect of our lives and the world in which we live is just a myth, isn't it? We are risk-averse people, generally speaking. We want to be in control. We want to know where we're going. We want to be masters of our own destinies. And in so many ways, that's why this year has been so painful for so many people because it's smashed all of that down. We are not in control. So don't hold back. I often ask myself and others the same two questions. How do I go after God's best for my life? And am I going after all God has me for? What's God's best? Not God's second best, not as much as I can stomach, not as much as I can get away with, not as much as I can bend the rules to sort of stay inside when it comes to my personal integrity and following Jesus and all of that. What is God's best for my life? And am I going after that? And secondly, am I going after all that God has me for? So are you. Are you? Is it God's best that you're longing for? Or is it your life as you planned it with just a little bit of God on the side? And are you going after all he has you for? Because it's in my experience that what he has you for normally works right through the grace that is on your life. Right through the deposit that is on your life. I really believe that in this room today, there are people graced to be a great many things. People graced to be teachers, people graced to be prophets, people graced to be pastors and church planters, people who have a business in their heart and it's been in your heart for a very long time, people who will parent kids into all God has them for, those who will gather the lost and the broken, the hurting and the lonely around their dinner tables, those who will live the kingdom in the everyday. Or if you're not sure today what on earth that looks like, take Scott McKnight's word for it. Ordinary work is where God is at work. There is a deposit in you of incredible worth, of astonishing generosity. You are diamonds in duffel bags. The question is, do you believe it today? But with that great gift comes great responsibility. Responsibility to use the grace that is on your life, to honor the Lord with your substance, and to do so is to see returns. We're going to wrap up and I'm going to ask Jamie and Angela to come and to sing, uh, sing over us again in a little minute. But um, we are living in strange days. It doesn't take me to tell you that. This has been perhaps the most bizarre year for uh, just about all of us in the room for a great many reasons and ways. We are in a world caught up in a global pandemic in a culture increasingly complex with complicated ethical questions about how we should live alongside questions like abortion and gender and sexuality and mental health and so on and so on and so on, right? The world we live in is incredibly complex, and we're living in times that are incredibly disrupted. And I truly believe that now, more than ever, this generation is being called back to live distinctly and boldly as people of the way of Jesus. It's why we've been teaching in this series, because we believe that the kingdom way is the Jesus way. And I truly believe that this moment, more than ever, is about living distinctly as people of the way, that in the end, it doesn't matter what the tone of the world around us will be. It doesn't matter what laws will change or will not. But the call is and has always been to live distinctly as distinctly Jesus-shaped people. 
Like, I don't think we're going to be the generation of the big campaigns and marches and all of that sort of stuff. I don't think that's going to be us. I think we're being called to be a people of distinctly different values, distinctly different culture, full of the life of another world. I say that today because I am just so very tired of reading stories about how this happens in other people's cities. I'm so tired of it. I've been reading a book over the last while and I'm like loving hearing what God has been doing in this other place and this other leader's journey and in this other person's church. And um, I love reading it in one hand and in another, in another way, I just get so totally frustrated. I am tired of reading other people's books. And I guess I want to say today, aren't you tired of reading other people's stories too? About New York or London or some city in Scotland or Australia, somewhere else way out there. Are you tired of that? Does that not weary you? The desire that we might see it here. I realize that I'm saying it in the middle of a period where we're about to be locked down for two more weeks and it might seem twee or ridiculous to suggest that the kingdom might inbreak when we're all kind of stuck in our houses. Why not? As if the Spirit of God has ever been barriered by walls or homes or a pandemic or control of a tyrant government, whatever. I'm tired of reading the books of the Acts and responding with amazement. I want to respond with engagement because I believe that engagement is faith. Just being astonished is not. Engagement is. And it starts here, right? I say that today, flowing from today's parable, because it starts here. It starts with realizing that there is an incredible kingdom deposit already in your life. You're gifted beyond what you can believe with incredible gifts and authority to see the world changed in Jesus' name. And the challenge to live out of that grace and all God has you for and therefore to see returns. It starts with even just believing it's there, that it could happen here, that it could be me, it could be you that your friendship circles could be changed, that your working environment could be changed, that your family could be changed, that that person you've been praying for to be healed for years could be changed.